Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. Hello, I'm Jonathan Bowman-Perks and welcome to my favourite time of the week and this time with a glass of wine and I'm on episode 100 with a very special guest, Lee Bowman-Perks, my wife. Welcome, Lee. Thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me on to this special one. No pressure. <laughs> no pressure. It's episode 100. But no, I, I genuinely think you deserve to be on here in, in your own right, not just because you're my wife. I, I really, people say you are an inspiring leader. You've written a book, Inspiring Women Leaders. Uh, you've written two books, uh, Top Tips for Inspiring Women Leaders and Inspiring Leaders in General. You've designed a psychometric about what makes inspiring leadership. You are the CEO of a charity called the Inspiring Leadership Trust for uh, helping vulnerable girls. We can talk about that later. Um, you're a coach to a whole variety of leaders at, at various levels. You're a team facilitator um, and you're a podcaster. That's quite a small order. <laughs> what else are you doing at the moment? What do I do in my spare time? <laughs> yeah. What else are you doing at the moment? Um, I think you basically, I'm a, I'm a mum, soon to be a grandmother as well. And, and uh, our relationship as we enter this new phase in our life as well, I think is really important to us. So um, home and relationships are as much of a, an important factor as well as all of these wonderful roles, which those roles they are wonderful they are my life's calling they are everything that I could dream about I'm doing now here every day I love what I do the work that I do and I think it's the portfolio career um, that, that really lends itself to that because I think I would get bored with a, a kind of a single a, a single role but this wonderful breadth of work that I do um, with leaders who I coach and uh, help to develop right through to the women uh, that we support in the charity. Um, but there is an underlying kind of theme with it all. So for me, it's all about inspiring leadership. So if you join all of the dots to all of the work that I do, it's it's to promote and help to inspire people to be the best that they can be mm. and to help others to feel inspired too. And that that's, that's it just is, is such a powerful place to be personally, um, to be able to be part of a process that helps others. Mm. It's been, uh, people talk about being your dharma, this is the, the calling, the vocation that you have, but it's been an incredible journey to get here, which has given you a whole range of experiences. Take me to the beginning, you know, what, what were the first few jobs that you, you got after school? Oh goodness, so um, I left school, as you know, without any qualifications whatsoever. So I came over to the UK from Ireland with my mum, no qualifications, saw an advert in a, uh, in a newspaper for a uh, youth trainee role at British Gas. And I didn't even really understand what British Gas was and who they were and the size of the organization, but knew I needed some money and, um, and I needed to work in, in some shape or form. And so I applied for this job and it was the most wonderful first opportunity to step into the world of work because the development and the, 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 the way that they engaged with 
certainly somebody from my background as well, um, to support somebody with, from my background was a, was a really good kickstart. Um, and it was very much from the ground up in operations, you know, processing bills right through to call centre operations. And then I had this great opportunity that presented itself to me to go to London on a big uh, project, one of the biggest projects um, across Europe at the time. And I had two children as well at the time, so but I still put my hand up, not again a little bit naively, um, but with a, a desire to develop and grow, and put my hand up and 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 got the job and uh, ended up in London on this wonderful project working with consultants and um, talented people to drive a major project through for the organisation. Um, again, a, a huge learning curve, but surrounded by really talented people that just help you to grow. And from there, I knew I wanted to stay in, you know, around the city and to develop even further. I came from a, a background where I grew up in the, the, the sticks in Ireland. And, you know, I was thinking my job was going to be, well, first of all, I thought, thought I was going to be a nun. <laughs> as a, a, That was my vocation. Um, and then my hormones set in. <laughs> so I thought maybe I'd be a teaching nun. And um, we've spoken about this before. I saw the sound of music and thought I'd be a singing teaching nun. And that was the height of my ambition. And all of a sudden to go down to London on this big project with very talented people, um, the horizons opened up. Because we, we went back for a, a family reunion mm. to Bundoran. And, and you talked about, and we met one or two of the people who've been in your class. Yeah. But they've really not gone very far from the town, have they, most of them? You know, you're probably unusual from that group. Uh, yeah, more unusual. I think, you know, there are certainly people who've left and travelled the world and done great things. Um, my cousin Tiernan Brady is a big advocate for um, human rights and gay rights and is doing phenomenal stuff around the world. So, But that was few and far between. Um, I think there's something very strong and compelling about the community that comes from Ireland, you know, that, that sense of relationships and family and staying close. For me, it was just a different journey. Mm -hmm. And so to take us further on this journey. So, you know, you'd gone down big project. Um, and of course, what's important for people who are listening is they're going to be some of the leaders who are bringing on new starters, uh, probably during COVID. They might not even meet them. They might just virtually get to know them. What was it that they did which was so good to bring you on and give you that drive and ambition which has made you become the CEO you are now? Hmm. I think they saw something in me that I didn't see for myself, number one. Um, my idea of my potential was very limited um, and I think other people saw something in me and really supported me along that journey, provided lots of opportunity for development and growth. Um, I think it's as well what I did for myself um, because once, once you get the taste for something, once you get the taste for development and growth and what can be out there, um, I think actually just finding those opportunities and really navigating through was just, it was a little bit self-driven, that sounds very egotistical to say, mm. but um, the, the, a lot of it was self-driven as well. Mm. and. I don't mind owning that because um, I know within that I made some strong choices along the way about where I wanted to go, who I wanted to work for. Um, and I was always surrounded by really great people. So you learn from others. I had great role models in my peer groups certainly around me. Um, 
And so I learned so much from the richness and content that was provided from others because of the way that we operated. Certainly back in those days as well, it was very collaborative and collegiate and, um, and there was a real dynamism about the way that we were working um, that, that really facilitated growth. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think it was, it was the combination of those things. But you also uh, had, had some great experiences at times of crisis. You know, you were in the mm. banking crisis, you were in Barclays, in the, um, uh, the sort of Twin Towers, you were in the airline industry, uh, Scandinavian yeah. Airlines. You know, you've, you've learned some hard lessons uh, in some real crises. How's that served you now? Here we are in a COVID, in another, another crisis. Well, what's really interesting is you, through crises, you get to see the, the good, the bad and the ugly of leadership. So with 9-11, you know, we, we were in Scandinavian Airlines and we were on an absolute um, growth spurt. We were developing that organisation, opening up new flight paths, paths around the world, um, delivering culture change programmes, really going after delivering amazing service for the customer with the intention for growing and developing that organization. And then, you know, one day you go to work as normal and 9-11 happens and you watch the scenes unfolding before your eyes. And and what struck me, I, I probably know more of this now with the financial crisis as well as I look back over leadership, what struck me about the leadership in Scandinavian airlines and the airline industry is just the power of culture. Mm within that environment that actually, despite all of the changes, despite people losing their jobs, um, there was a lot of fear, uh, a lot of um, confusion at the time. And despite all of that, there was something deeply healthy about the culture that understood that even through change, dignity and respect for those around you was really important. And that leadership behavior was I think I go. I think back to my time in the airline industry as one of my fondest memories of working for corporate. Mm. Despite the fact that there was that major catastrophic, life-changing change that was going on for everybody involved, um, take that, project that forward to. We're just staying with well, that. It's just staying with that because I remember doing my exec MBA. A case study was Scandinavian mm. Airlines. Jan Carlson, the yeah, CEO. Yeah. Uh, as a real inspiration yeah. and, and you probably just took that as the norm but it was exceptional what you were experiencing so a great upbringing and very early on in my career as well so a very formative time in my career um, that helped me to understand what inspiration looked like because the tone I do believe the tone is set by the top um, and that really filtered through the organization but it wasn't just the tone set by the top in terms of an ivory tower that sits somewhere and there's a disconnect between what's going on on the ground. People on the ground, ground staff, flight crew, they would all talk about Jan Carlson and his attitude and his behaviours when they met him um, and how they, they were just brought in by him and his ethos and his value system. And so we learned from Jan Carlson just through actually our personal engagements with him on the floor directly. Yeah, Very powerful. A yeah. great book called The Moments of Truth, yes. um, which links directly to, you know, his... his Tell us what, what Moments of Truth mean. Um, so Moments of Truth is, is in that very specific moment. So how do you show up? 
How do you present yourself? 9-11 and everything that was going, that was a moment of truth for us all. That was a moment of, for Scandinavian Airlines. But it you, had be your own, you had your own crash shortly after, didn't you? We did, within the space of a couple of weeks. So absolutely devastating. Um, you know, and uh, a private plane um, flew into one of our own planes um, and took out hundreds of people on board. And absolutely devastating. Um, and again, it was the leadership. In fact, what struck me is the compassion. Um, compassion not just for the families and the people on board the plane, but how the communication flow through the organisation mm. was compassion for everybody that worked for Scandinavian Airlines, that they cared deeply about our own responses to um, something that was so devastating. Now, compassion was part of Jan Carlson, the culture he set up and the care for customer. But you later tried a, a variety of different, you, you got promoted and went mm -hmm. through different organisations, but you went into the banking sector and that isn't known for compassion, but yet you did find some good leaders there. Who, in your time, in, you were both in Barclays and in HSBC, who stood out for you during that time? Well, certainly um, Diana Oppenheimer, who I know you've interviewed before, absolutely phenomenal leader. So she would, again, make you feel like the most important person in the room with deep connection and interest. And she would ask you questions. She would encourage you to think. Um, and you felt a complete ease with her. You never felt on your guard um, or mistrusting as a result. I think she was a great visionary. She had great passion for the organisation. But what sticks with you is that moment of truth, the, mm. the, the moment mm. when you meet the CEO of an organisation who cares deeply about it. But as much as that cares deeply about, how do I interact with you in this moment? And what's the impact I'm going to leave? Mm. And the thing with the, you know, the finance sector, because I th we, we do this so much with government, finance sector, the media, and we, you know, we have halos and horns. <laughs> horns. Thank yeah. you. Um, need more of this to get me yeah. thinking well. Um, but, you know, you've got the halo horns effect. And it's almost like we paint this wide kind of brush across everybody. It's just like, well, banking is evil. Government is evil. Bureaucracy is... And actually, it's not the case. There's, I, my own observation in any organisation that I've worked with is you've got far more great intentioned people turning up wanting to do good work, wanting to make a positive impact. And sometimes it's the systems and structures that, that um, makes things go awry. Quite often it's certain people within those organisations that, that, that bring it to almost a, a level of collapse. But mostly people, I believe, come with great intention. Mm. Um, and so labelling for me is a really important thing, is actually being really clear about, what, about um, understanding what the, the, the deeper issues are. Yeah within system structure and not just labeling a whole system or a whole set of people just because of yeah. um, some of the the, 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 the errors, the mm. faults that might exist. Well, you've taught me a lot about non-judgment and uh, you, you catch me if I'm, <laughs> if I'm being judgmental about people and I really value that. And so all these different things brought you to this moment today where you've got essentially two jobs. You're the CEO of, of a charity, a startup charity, which you founded yourself, the Inspiring Leadership Trust. And you're also coaching and facilitating and doing public speaking and a podcast. Um, that's, that's a lot. 
what drives you? You know, what makes you do all this? You know, anybody would just find one of those things is enough, but you do the lot. Well, we've all got the same amount of time in the day. Um, and, and I work really, really hard. And I try to work with deep focus. And I think the fact that all of those things are aligned means that I can apply my energy in a way that is deeply focused around one agenda, which is to inspire leadership. And what does that look like? And what are the different forms of showing up and, and helping that to take place? Mm. And I think to just work within organisations to help develop inspirational leadership within organisations, it would be unsatisfying for me because actually, and I, it, this was triggered by writing the book, Inspiring Women Leaders, and all of the research that I did um, with women and men around the world who were doing really great things that were identified as inspiring leaders and the assessment methods that we used to help with that piece of research. What really struck me is that there are people out there who are in life and death situations. You know, the decisions that they make on a daily basis have an implication. And, and I was really inspired by the field directors in war zones, disaster zones, military people, you know, you name it. And they were out there putting on the lives on the line to help, to be in service of others. And I think if I were to only focus on organisations and not think about a bigger responsibility, a moral duty actually around how I impact this world, what, what's my legacy? Mm. How am I going to add value at a deeper level? Now that my, my background was not um, normal, um, where I am today is very different to where I was when I first started out. And to miss the opportunity to actually give back in the most meaningful way possible to our communities, I think would be an absolute shame. We're sitting on a sofa now. Which squeaks a lot when we move, so we're trying to... <laughs> but um, I, I, I do recall something that sort of shaped you was hiding behind the sofa. Do you <laughs> want to tell us a bit more about that and how that, that early life and the tough time with your father and, and all that you experienced with a mother fighting to, to bring up two girls on her own and escape an abusive situation. How has that shaped you in the charity you're now the CEO of and you founded? So I want to share a story with you. So when I first launched my book um, and we were in one of the, the banks and we had a wonderful celebration, about 200 people in the room, and the intention for the book was to actually donate all of the profits to um, a, a charity at that time. And I remember walking off stage after we'd presented about the book and we'd had some speakers and somebody came up to me and they said, but you're white privilege. Wow. And so you have no right to talk about this kind of stuff. And, and it was really, I felt really quite angry. Um, not because, but, but it was almost this assumption around who I was and my backstory. Um, now that's not to say we, you know, my story is harder than anybody else's, but what struck me there is how easily we can make judgments mm. about people and about their potential, or about the impact, or what they should and shouldn't be doing because of this. Um, and so, yeah, if I, if I go back to, um, I was born in England, and we had to leave um, very quickly, so uh, to escape an abusive 
relationship. Um, I was only a toddler at the time, so myself, my mum, my sister, we got on a plane to escape. And I can remember... From your father? From my father. Um, and I can remember as we were sitting on the plane and getting ready to go, and I, I was naive, I was young at the time, I did not know the circumstances in which we were leaving fully, um, I appreciate. And as we were preparing to leave, um, the, the flight attendant called us off the plane. So there was an announcement and we had to get off the plane. And my father was, father was actually in the airport um, saying that we couldn't leave. And so my mum negotiated. If she stayed, then myself and my sister could leave and go back home to Ireland, and he agreed. And at that point, we didn't know whether we would see mum again. Wow. Um, and so, fortunately, we did. It, the, the, you know, we, there's a happy ending to that story. And she did. She, a few weeks later, she came to Ireland, and we were living with her grandparents um, for a long period of time because we had no money. We had nothing and of course mum came over to Ireland and she had to find a job and struggled to get into initially to a teaching profession over there she's a teacher because of some of the regulations and rules around who can teach in Ireland particularly at that time um, but she worked hard and she studied hard and she made sure that she could break down a system which was very much um, biased towards a divorcee a single parent um, she broke down the system and got to work in the local national school. Mm. She was a very strong woman. And what about the sofa? What was the story about the so sofa? So the story about the sofa, well, we eventually to get to our own kind of place, but mum was very poor. You know, we were very, and I can remember, you know, quite often if there'd be a knock on the door and it'd be the bailiffs, we would all hide behind the sofa as the bailiffs came to the door um, in, in ways to try to, to avoid getting caught or for mum to... to um, to have furniture removed and things like that. So, um, yeah, it's. Uh, yeah. She was a very strong woman, um, very wonderful, caring, compassionate, but an inner strength like probably not very many I've met in my life. Uh, and I must say, I, I thought the eulogy you did for her at a funeral a couple of weeks ago, very special. Yeah, it was a celebration of somebody who just had an absolute zest for life, and it wasn't just all about work. She won awards for all over Ireland for her acting and you know, she was approached by um, a professional acting group to to join them and become professional as an actress and she didn't follow that route because she fundamentally believed that she needed to look after her children as a single mum mm. and that was uh, a very um, dodgy area to, to, to go into. Yeah. She wouldn't know whether she could have the, the security of, of money coming through. Yeah. And I know that was a big fear for her. Yeah. What was it you've learned from uh, a mother of, of her caliber and, and with the values that she had? What, what's been her legacy? She's left you, now she's gone. Mm -hmm. Oh, goodness, is to, it's a journey, right? Because we don't always get it right. But she was deeply courageous when, you know, the system, the religion, Everything was about you stay in unhealthy marriages no matter what. You um, you don't really have a voice sometimes within a system. But she was a voice. I remember her getting um, uh, pulled out of a, a, a council meeting one time because she was speaking up about the troubles in Ireland. And she had a voice. Um, and it's taken me a long time to get there because I was very shy when I was growing up speaking events, going on stage, that took a lot to kind of get to that point. 
because I wasn't even a natural extrovert or loved presenting. That was, that was a huge step. But mom always found courage in her voice, her authentic voice. And I think that more and more as I get older and um, a lot older, <laughs> um, it, that's become more important to me is that, that life and my experiences around me and the way that I connect with others, that authenticity of voice um, is, is really important. But also to hear back as well, to be really open to um, the feedback of others. So it's not just about my voice in the room, because actually I think particularly these days, as I look at the way, uh, the way we become so divided, you know, on every level, globally, um, organisationally, um, uh, culturally, mm-hmm. we've become so divided around so many things. And it's because partly we stop listening. And partly we, you know, going back to judgment, and you've got these swathes of divisive views about everything. And actually we stop looking for the greys in between, particularly when there's so much noise around us and we're mm-hmm. presented with so many untruths as well as truths. Where do you find the real answer? And I think, you know, mum taught me to find my voice, but to listen, deeply listen. And actually you did as well, because when you first met me, I was like, Mini mice and helium, <laughs> and I think it's the way that you find your 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 voice in Ireland because everybody just talks ten to the dozen, and there's no in breath, there's no space to have a you know to intervene. So you've either got to talk over people, or wait for that in breath, and then go blah. Um, and so you and Mum taught me about listening, and then thinking what what does that mean, and how does that alter my thinking as a result. Because one of the things I've I've noticed, if I've been lucky enough to um, hear you coaching someone or facilitating a team, is you're really interested in people's life stories, mm-hmm. and you and you draw their stories, and I think that really helps you because they don't feel judged by you. Because I know you always said, look, I've made way more mistakes than you've ever made. You know, I've, I've had all the experiences, mm-hmm. so so I'm not Daily. one to judge. I'm not one to judge anybody. And I think, you know, you've changed people's lives. How, how does that make you feel when they say that you've changed their lives and that their success in their business and a promotion or whatever it is? How does that work for you? So what I find most inspiring is that they've changed their lives. Because going back to exactly what I said before, they have been courageous enough to enter a situation where they have listened. And they have not approached coaching in a tick box exercise way, whereas just go through this development process, but they've, they've opened themselves up to so much vulnerability. And I've seen tears, I've seen the whole works, anger. But when they get through that process and they go, do you know what? I need to make change happen here because this is the impact. I now realize this is the impact that's going on. That's really deeply courageous. And so I'm inspired by their attitudes Mm. to how they've changed themselves. And all I've done is help to provide insight and interpretation that's been the catalyst for that. And so people listening and watching, uh, what kind of coach will you be, you know, how, how would you support, challenge and inspire them? What, how would they experience you? Hmm. 
differently dependent on the context. Um, I, I, I think I'm more of a mentor coach as well because I don't believe always in holding back on the richness of experiences. But the journey that I would want to take them through, and I always start with actually, is, is self-awareness. And all of us, I think, we are... The, the way that we survive as a human race is partly because of the way that we deceive ourselves with the information that we're presented with. And it's our form of kind of recalibrating information. It's a form of self-protection that we build up. And so we create new narratives that reinforce our own belief systems and our, even our own biases about ourselves. Because mm. our, our belief is that we always come at something with great intent, um, despite our actions. But then we make judgment about other people's actions and not mm. about their intent. And so to really open up the window to somebody's impact that is beyond intention to these are the behaviors that people are experiencing. Great behaviors here, these are your strengths. But to be open and honest and courageous in a conversation that says, actually, and there's some work to be done, which we all have to do. You, me, everybody um, has to constantly check in and build our self-awareness about how we're impacting on those around us. And I don't think we do enough of that. And that's the starting point for any journey. And then as a coach, it's about being supportive, um, being informative if and when I need to be, but be really challenging. So if feedback comes through to say that a leader is toxic, if they are bullying, now quite often there's a narrative that goes around uh, for, you know, about when coaching comes in, and it's only about the high performance and high potential. Just like, well, that's only 10% of your organization. And what are you doing about the derailers that exist within your organization? Because actually I fundamentally believe we can create change within everybody, as long as they have the attitude and the desire for change. And so we limit- Because your, your next book and your whole yeah. podcast series, t tell us what the title is of that. Oh, it's Inspiring Leadership and the Toxic Turnarounds. So it's really to look at the dark and the light side of leadership and to know, um, to understand how systems, structures and cultures, and even us as individuals, how we interact with that are either helping to inspire or um, reinforcing some of the negativity and the, the toxicity that exists. And sometimes we don't look the, the impact of that is just so profound. We just need to look across the world at the moment to think about how different leaders are behaving in an era of crisis. Mm -hmm. And what struck me, you know, as we entered the pandemic, what struck me was the, um, the quality of leadership in those early phases in so many ways. Yes, there's always questionable decisions, but this is a really tough challenging time there's always going to be things that will be questioned but you know the, the the fact that in those early days yes there was the initial fear but then we had communities organizations and governments around the world switching into action mm -hmm. and so we saw this positive inspirational role modeling of leadership that we have not seen for a long period of time so you know where we saw this support of the nhs and a community spirit, for example, that built up around that. We have not seen that. 
that appreciation, that deep appreciation before, or the way that organisations have switched in order to create help to deal with the challenges that we face. Absolutely brilliant. And they've switched it on. Instead of one, two, five-year, ten-year strategies for, for making change, the, 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 these were switched on within the space of weeks. Mm. And then we've also seen the toxic side of leadership as well that generates fear and a narrative and a um, almost like a propaganda that is very self-serving. So we've, kind of, we've seen the dark and the light side of leadership. And it's deeply irresponsible because it's not just about the leader and their, you know, what's in their periphery, what they can see. This is about changing society and society's views. This is about how people respond and react. This is whether they feel safe, mm. psychologically safe, or whether they feel threatened. And then what happens as a result of those behaviours is not... Leaders need to hold themselves to account for the decisions that they make that have broader impacts in, in society as a mm. whole. Mm, very, very good. And, and let's take you back. Mm. Knowing what you know now, and, and, and you're constantly soaking up, reading things, learning things, listening on, on your headphones to different uh, speakers and motivational speaking, and you're then passing that on to people. Now you've written books on top tips for inspiring leaders. What was the bit of advice that you wish, the one bit of advice you wish you'd had right at the beginning when you'd, you'd you know, gone out and just started your first job? What bit of advice would you say, God, I wish I'd known that, and it's one that people are worth taking up when they start out? Hmm. I think there's two bits. So there's one bit which is pre my career, and what is mum as she she said the world is your oyster she, she believed in me um so much that she thought i could do anything if i wanted to be an astronaut <laughs> then you know i could be that that was mum's view which of course that's that's what happens in families but what has struck me is just how um how little information there was about what your full potential could look like and so as you're navigating through your education and considering your career, for me personally, growing up in Ireland in a convent school, um, my vision, my horizon was so limited. And that was because of the lack of role models, but also the belief that actually you could be somebody that could develop and advance and help even change the world in some small way. You know, there's so many roles out there. There's so many opportunities and we're going to help you get there. They didn't do that, did they? They just don't do that. And part of the reason why the charity exists is actually to help to bridge the gap between, you know, um, the low aspirational levels of people that are out there that just need the helping hand to get to a new place and to look at what those horizons could look like. So, so stay with that because uh, the, the charity is what I want to hear about now. That, you know... It's big on social mobility, which you've experienced mm. yourself in your own life, and big on helping victims of abuse, which on a number of occasions you have been a victim of abuse, but you don't see yourself as a victim. You see yourself as someone who not defined by your past. But it, it, it has meant that you want to go out there and help other people. Tell us about what is the Inspiring Leadership Trust? Why did you set it up? And what is your dharma, your calling, your vocation with this charity? So the charity was set up off the back of being inspired by the women that I'd interviewed for the book. And I went, wow, we talk about diversity, we talk about equality, we talk about 
um, gender equality and the pay gap. But when we talk about it, it felt very much like it was within the corporate walls. And I was absolutely guilty of this too. Um, and it, what I was exposed to through the research was actually what was going on in our communities that I was blind to. Um, and that despite all of the investment that is happening into charities, into interventions, something else needed to be put in place because the, the issues are rising. They're not depleting, they're, they're, they're rising. And why is that the case? Um, and so part of it was actually really learning beyond my own peripheral vision uh, around the corporate world that the, there's a bigger community out there that is really important to be in service of. And in my privilege position today, um, I, it's, it's important now to give back. And just staying with that, you, what is so good is you, you've combined all these leaders that you and your coaches, because you have a variety of mm. other coaches you can call on and speakers from around the world. You, you've picked these top businessmen and women, mm. mainly a lot of businesswomen, but men too, and you've got them to give back to the charity, and then they get something back. This this whole idea of reciprocity—it's quite unique. And you've also don't see other co other charities as rivals. You see it as ways of collaborating and helping. Yeah. That's rare. Tell us about both those things. Well, charities are struggling. You know, um, government is, is struggling. There are so many agendas that are out there. It's like, what agenda do you go after? Um, that isn't a tick box exercise to um, the public kind of sentiment at any given time. And so I, th I think we need to play a part in helping. Sometimes we kind of point out there and we go, why is this not working? Um, and actually we've got to look inwards and go, and what can we do to help? And this is, this is a really important area is that we've all got a part. I love the way that people mobilized around helping at the very beginning of COVID, but we've switched back to this kind of fear-based, um, uh, challenging kind of style of responding to what, what's going on in the world. But that's, that's really important. And charities need help. There's no point me competing or just providing another service that is the absolute same as other charities. What we've got to do is to understand what's in the gap. So we did a big, big piece of research to understand what's in the gap and what do we need to do to help empower women and girls and help them to become financially independent. And then how can we work collectively and collaboratively with organizations to help to achieve our mutual goals? Because actually if we're all to look at our goals um, in this space, then it is about the empowerment of women. But it's just at different phases in which we're intervening. And so I set up the charity based on the fact that I knew we've got a very strong network of global brands and top leaders from all of those different organizations as well and entrepreneurs. Our network is so powerful. And how powerful is it to take that back out into communities? Because these leaders, the research also showed that you know, whilst I felt that I wanted to give more back to our community, the research into inspiring leadership, that legacy component, other leaders wanted to do too properly, not just a, again a tick box exercise, but properly. How could they affect change? Mm -hmm. um, and the power of the charity was therefore to kind of 
really look at how do we mobilize those leaders and then how do we bring that back into our communities of women so that more people can feel uh, feel inspired and more people can have a new pathway to a different life and the only way to do that is through collaboration because when women and girls go to a charity organization at the moment the proposition is not infinite it's finite as mm. per Simon Sinek. Mm. They have a finite amount of, amount of resource, a finite amount of re funding, mm. and then they're rolled out of the system. But the journey doesn't end there and certainly the vulnerability doesn't end there as well. So what can we as organizations do to help to engage with a part of our communities that doesn't get that visibility and really put our money where our mouth is to inspire and empower through opportunities, through development, that helps to change lives. And, and who have you managed to persuade to back you? Which which organisations have backed you? Government and uh, different uh, corporations? So we're doing some work with a, a variety of different organisations through this um, multi-agency partnership approach, but the Home Office and the work that they're doing around serious and organised crime, domestic violence, abuse, county lines, trafficking, really important projects that mm. need to be driven through this country and when you hear the stories that are going on when you get closer you realize just how important it is that we start to engage in these big agendas and help our governments um, and the home office and all these different institutions our local authorities to thrive um, the dwp department for work work and pensions we're doing some work there um, again to help women and girls that um, are unemployed um, and then a whole range of different charity organizations from homelessness to trafficking to mental health um, a whole range of different organizations yeah. because we don't define the girl by the past we think about the future so you've been on a journey you've had some support um, which have been provided has been provided by local authorities and existing charities and how do we take you through this next phase, this next transition into a new life? Fascinating. And, and we could talk for hours on this. I could. I clearly uh, could. <laughs> and so, yeah. so this combination between, and we're, we're sort of coming towards the end of our, of our chat, but this, this combination between coaching, speaking, team development, and then getting the leaders that you meet to give back to society, to the, the most vulnerable the ones who can develop it. And then you get the top speakers in the world to give their time as speakers to the volunteers. I yeah. think that's fabulous, that, that reciprocity. But um, Just on that, because um, it, it was really important for me to set up a very new model, not to replicate, but to think about what does the future look like um, in terms of organisations. And the fact that I was running this on the side it's not on the side of my desk anymore. It's kind of taken up the whole every of my desk and every everybody weekend. else's as well. This is a woman who works <laughs> at three in the morning. <laughs> not anymore, because I'm not alive. Um, but, uh, but, you know, th th this, this for me, this charity had to represent something different. And it was about the energy of leadership effort. And it had to be really cost efficient, very dynamic, very agile. Because if we became costly and unwieldy, we can't do what we do. So the reason why I reward leaders is because, you know, I don't have marketing and branding and communications departments. I don't have strategy departments. I do, but actually they're all 
business leaders who volunteer their time. And so it's about that collective effort and the untapped potential that exists within our leadership community that can drive a charity forward. But they're all getting to know each other from all these different top brands. Yeah, You've got yeah. these volunteers. It's beautiful. I, I, then, I think it's brilliant. And then to give this leadership academy, and again, it plays back into the ethos of, of how do you inspire, lead, inspire leadership as far and as wide as possible? And if I were to just focus on the girls and the women in the communities, then there's a missed opportunity in developing the leaders and it's our way to say thank you. So yeah, we bring these amazing speakers, coaches, facilitators, and they all donate their time to help develop the leaders, both in the charity organizations, but also the businesses that volunteer their time, as well as to help the women and girls. It's a real program of give and gain. It's great. So as we come down to perhaps some, a few tips from you at the end, and maybe a book, um, the, the, other, the other thing before we go into those stages is we're, we're in the middle of wave two of a pandemic as we come to this episode. Um, what's been your learning? You've had to take your charity. You, you talked to me about three things that you've done with the charity and your business. Digitization, diversity and inclusion, and ESG, um, which I think this, uh, might get it right, environment, s- social, and um, governance, better governance which is the, you know, running companies better, more mm. stakeholder-centered rather than just shareholder value and making lots of money. Um, as you've adapted to COVID, you know, what, what's been the lessons and, and how do you think it's going, both the, the way things will go in the future? What's your guess at the way it's going? Because it's only a guess. No one has a clue what's really going to happen. But what's your learning? The most powerful lesson, so me running a charity or I suppose any organization, um, out there, the most powerful lesson is how much we can achieve um, on scale, on mass, very quickly, very effectively, with deep focus um, when an issue outside of our control has presented itself. So I was looking at technology and digitization and how we get agile and how we achieve growth um, on scale. But I was looking at one year, two year, three years down the line, I had this long-term agenda mm. around how we would make that happen. Within the space of two weeks, we invested in digital projects that helped us to switch on services for women and girls straight away. Um, we, it, it didn't stop us. And so I think there is something in the way that we are systems, our structures, our medieval structures that we have, our medieval structures, we've got these 21st century technologies um, and we've got these medieval structures and then we've got our Paleolithic motions. This is a quote by Professor Wilson at Harvard Business School. And this has really played out. So we've got, yeah, (laughs) thank you. Um, But, you know, the scenario that's been presented to us, we've had to act and act quickly. And yet before that, you and I, we were... We were supposed to be going out doing speaking events on how to mm. help organizations adapt to more agile working. Well, <laughs> you know, we've so, lived it. We've lived it. They, we've lived it. it organizations made, made it happen because they had to. And I kind of think there's something within uh, the way that we operate at the moment. Um, you know, when you've got Project Rapid that isn't so rapid and you've got, you know, 40 different committees in order to sign off a you know, mm, yeah. a, a, um, a, a project or whatever. How do we get lean, agile, and really switched on? Because 
the future is going to be so much more dynamic, so much more volatile. Someone once said, it's uh, one academic I know, he said, this is the slowest it's ever going to be today. This yeah, is yeah, the slowest. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's never going to be as slow yeah. as this ever again. Yeah. What? And then I, I think the, the flip side of that is how do we manage our anxieties around it? Mm. Because, you know, it is so fast paced and therefore so intense. And how do we recalibrate about how we organize, our, organize ourselves but protect our well-being along the way? Because we could, we could, we could become the over-anxious, kind of high-performing, exactly. and, and that could be short-lived. But, but you are, you know, I'm conscious you have a personal trainer, you keep fit. You, mm. you're what, <laughs> you know, you've made a point of, if you're advising the people you're coaching, I do admire that you've gone there first yourself. So you say, look, here's some suggestions of what you can do to look after your health and your well-being and and, and at least you know you're not a hypocrite because you're actually doing the same so i just want to acknowledge that and just say that. let's let's as we close let's think about tips and a book what would be a couple of leadership tips that you give to people about being a more inspiring leader so i don't think there's any one hero within an organization so first of all and so to build teams around you that are diverse in nature, but not just about diversity, because you can have a diverse team, a diverse board, but actually if you fail to capitalize on it because you don't know how to listen, or you don't know how to move away from groupthink to leverage the full capacity and capability of that diverse team, then that's an issue. So really investing in, how do you help an organization to think and feel empowered? How do you, when you show up, at a meeting, when you show up in a one-to-one, how do you bring out the best thinking in others rather than to assault the thinking of others? Mm. Um, And I think diversity is key, but diversity in isolation is never gonna work because actually we we just will do a lot of groupthink. We need to know how to behave with diversity and how to facilitate it Mm. um, culturally and not just as as a tick box. Okay. Number one. Um, and I think there's something about, again, the moments of truth. Because there are so many books out there. I'm always looking for the kind of the magic answer to how to be an inspiring leader. I kind of sense that we all intuitively know when we're being inspiring and uninspiring. And what it looks like because we've all experienced it for ourselves as well. And so to enter into each day thinking about how you're going to show up. And how you're going to inspire in a moment, even when there's challenge, even if there's toxicity around you, to take ownership for what you are accountable for and what you can influence and to show up in the most inspiring form of you. Mm. Brilliant. Finally, your book. What book would you say you've enjoyed or you've been reading recently and you'd recommend to others? So there's three books that I keep playing with at the moment. One is the Simon Sinek, um, The Infinite Game, because I'm a fundamental believer if we're to create long-term change, we need to move away from short-term mindsets and this competitive, um, combative, combative nature, um, which is, is depleting mm. energy and culture and the full opportunity of, of how to grow mm. globally, mm. You know, not just um, for our organizations, but on a global scale. Um, I think that Brené Brown is a wonderful one around vulnerability and shame and how we attach that to, how that becomes part of our blueprint 
and therefore we don't show up in our most authentic selves. So how do we um, find a new narrative for how we can show up being okay with who we are and believing that we're enough? And then there's one that I'm, I've started to read um, as well, which is by Paul Trivers, which is on deceit and self-deception. And if I were to look across the work that we do within organisations and with leaders, it always starts with awareness and breaking down our own kind of self-deception mm-hmm. um, that is holding us back from being that inspiring leader. And I think that's a very powerful book because it helps us to understand our biases um, and our egos and therefore how we like to present ourselves and who we're fooling uh, along the way. Pete Bowman Perks, thank you very much indeed. Episode 100, we've done it. Thank, thank you, you for inviting <laughs> me and I hope you do- I did you proud. <laughs> you did, I was very proud of you, very proud. So, now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you going to do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com, or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, Get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you.